We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Singer, pianist and entertainer John Courtenay became part of an elite group of entertainers in October 2020 when he claimed victory as the winner of the 14th series of the heavyweight Britain's Got Talent. He made the record books by being the first ever Golden Buzzer act to win the series, meaning a spot on the Royal Variety Performance was assured. Since winning BGT, Courtenay has contributed to the ITV documentary Les Dawson and Lost Tapes and wrote and performed the end of the series end of the show show on this year's Anton Dex Saturday Night Takeaway. I caught up with the all-round entertainer to talk heroes, variety and his hopes for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Courtenay. So we'll get on to you know what in a second, but as a jobbing entertainer and veteran of the circuit for many years, you've possibly experienced the tougher side of showbiz. So what's life as a jobbing entertainer really like? Have you always felt part of the entertainment community? That's a great first question. Um, yeah, I've I've been very lucky. I've I've always I've always been busy, and like most jobbing entertainers, we can't afford to pick and choose too much. So. I've done the good and the bad. Um, thankfully, the last few years um, have been pretty good. I, I found a little niche working on the cruise liners for quite a few years. Um, and I sort of had a show that I, I targeted at those audiences, which had changed a lot in the last, just in the last 20 years, really. I mean, cruising used to have a bit, a bit of a reputation for mostly retired people with some money, spending the kids' inheritance, that kind of thing. Um, but in recent years, it, it's it's come on in leaps and bounds. You've got your Disney Cruise Line, Celebrity Royal Caribbean, lots of families, state-of-the-art theatres and shows, West End Broadway shows, Cirque du Soleil on board. So it was a great privilege to be a part of that, really, and to be um, part of some really high-class entertainment. But it meant a lot of time away. And I did sort of kiss my UK career goodbye a little bit as well because I was away so much. Um, so I went from doing the circuit a little bit in this country uh, a few years ago, many years ago, really, uh, to predominantly doing the cruise lines and the occasional corporate work when I was at home. But it's a it's a great circuit. I mean, it used to be you could do the, the working men's clubs in this country um, back in the day, and that was a solid circuit. Uh, now they're uh, they're still going, but they're pretty badly paid, and and um, and yeah, no live bands really anymore. It's all tracks and stuff. So the, the ships is like the new circuit, really. Um, and I was loving it, but as I say, I'd sort of kissed the UK goodbye, which is where you know what stepped in, but we'll get to that in a minute, yeah. Hey, 
Do you think uh, cruise ship entertainment has its own little community? Because a lot of entertainers that Josh interviews, they seem to really like it, really enjoy it. Definitely, yeah. There's a very some most of my closest friends are people that I've met over the last sort of 15 years, say, when I started doing ships about 15 years ago, I guess. Um, and then it got busier and busier. But there's a great community. Um, we have our little WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups helping each other out because there's so much traveling. I mean, I think um, I worked out actually because I start when I started writing a, a book about what I've been through. Um, and I worked out that I've done over 500 ships. And at one time I was doing over 100 flights a year. So with that sort of traveling, you've got your lost luggage, your delayed flights, your lost passports, all that kind of stuff. And that was even before Brexit. Um, so there's a great community where we help each other out. And when we're on board, chances are you're going to be on board with somebody that um, you know, and it's kind of fun to hang out and have a couple of beers after the show and stuff. So that's cool. But also um, when I started on ships, you'd fly on for maybe a week or even two weeks or even longer. And it was great then because my el my now elder son was very young before school. So my family came with me a lot and we'd stay on the ships for a long time. Uh, but then when my kids got older and started school, I wanted to be away less, but earn more money because you know that's how it works. So we started doing fly-ons and that was great as well. So you'd fly on, you'd do a show and then leave within sort of one or two days and then either ship hop. So you go to another ship and do the same again. So you could do four, five, six ships in a two week period instead of just, just the one and get paid for each one. So it was a way of getting a bit of a pay rise um, and not being away more than, than we were before, but it meant more traveling, more craziness. Um, there's a there's a joke amongst the cruise ship entertainers that they don't pay us for the show because we love doing the show and they're amazing theaters and you have an amazing tech team and a big live band. The show is the highlight. They pay us for the traveling and the stress and the lost luggage and the delayed flights and all that jazz. Um, which can get get a bit crazy. You learn to take it in your stride, but there's a great community. Yeah, good question, Josh. Yeah, excellent community. What was your opinion on the impact of reality television on traditional entertainment prior to auditioning for Britain's Got Talent? Wow. Well, reality television covers a lot, and it's not all talent. <laughs> um, I think I think BGT if you accept it for what it is, I mean, Simon's very astute, obviously, he's a great businessman. Um, and he's created a television show, and it's a TV show first, and a talent show second. Um, and I realized that when it first sort of started and watching it, because straight away, my friends would say, Oh, you know, we should go for this. And my family would say to me, why don't you go on it? Um, and I, I accepted that it wasn't back in the old days, you're, you're be too young, Josh, I imagine, but Opportunity Knocks was around, New Faces in the 70s and 80s, um, and they were talent shows. And that was also in the days when if you had success on those shows, you had a TV career ahead of you because there were lots of panel shows. You could get your own TV show. People like Les Dawson came through the talent shows, uh, um, Tom O'Connor, uh, oh, there's loads of them that, that, that came through that sort of Victoria Wood, New Faces, um, that got exposure on those talent shows. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think Simon just took it to the next stage, really. He made it the big production, the huge budget, the sob stories, the behind the scenes. Um, and he did it very well. But it is a TV show. It's a TV show first. You know, they, they, they are making a TV show. They, they want to get a story. They want to they wanna make you cry. They want to get emotion. They're really trying to, I'm not going to say manipulate because I didn't feel manipulated, but I realised that they're making a show for television. Um, and if you play the game and you you do okay then it can be beneficial for you um other reality shows i don't watch to be honest the, the things like I mean, if you mean like 
Love Island and The Only Way is Essex or that mm. kind of stuff. Mm. I don't watch any of them, so I can't really. My wife watches Love Island and it was on last night. And, you know, I forced myself to watch because there were beautiful ladies in bikinis. So that was tough, but I, I, I got through it. Um, but yeah, I don't understand the whole, it, I mean, that's sort of cheap TV really. And I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of, of general reality TV. I got, I got, got some of that. I'm desperately trying to catch some of it. Go on. Yeah, no, it's okay. He's just saying, Josh was saying, just as a podcaster, he always has a running joke with one of his journalist friends. And he says, if he ever did get someone from Love Island or The Only Way is Essex onto this podcast, he wouldn't know what the hell to talk about or ask him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, there are the, yeah, I, I, reality shows cover so much. I mean, the, you've got your, I, I guess the, the, um, I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here is a reality show, and I'm, I, I do enjoy that. I love watching that. I have to say that because it's hand and deck. Um, but no, I, I think that's that, that, that's very very entertaining television. Um, and the Dancing with the Stars or Dancing on Ice, all that kind of stuff. That's great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't class that as the same sort of thing as all the the Love Island stuff. I mean, there's a lot of there's a, a sort of a trend nowadays of young people. And when I say young, I mean very young at school, going up to people in their sort of teens, whatever. Um, of when they're asked what they want to be when they're older, they say famous. I want to be famous. Um, with no real concept of, I mean, fame is a byproduct. Fame comes along because you're, it should come along because you're talented at doing something. That changed with all the, 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 what I, you know, the, the reality shows like that, because you can be famous for being on telly now, um, which is great. I don't, I, know, I, I don't, I don't want to sound like an old fart, but I don't, I don't get it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, celebrities being celebrities because they've got something to offer. Um, I'm probably going to get in trouble for talking this openly about it. I don't know, but I'll never go. I'll, I'll never be asked to be on them anyway. Yeah, and you wouldn't like eating kangaroo anuses anyway, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, don't don't knock it till you tried it, John. <laughs> Never ruled anything out. <laughs> so your act is heavily rooted in the golden years of British variety, with people like Les Dawson, Norman Wisdom, and Bruce Forsyth using musical devices within their act. Who were your heroes growing up, and how have you merged all those influences together to form the basis of your act? Uh, well, my. My heroes growing up weren't really involved with the, with what I do now because I didn't know I was going to do this. I mean, I, I, want, I wanted to be on stage, but I got into comedy magic when I was a, or magic when I was a kid. I got bought a magic set when I was about six or seven years old. Um, and at the time, Tommy Cooper was a huge star on, on British TV. Uh, and around the same sort of time, Paul Daniels started his, his magic show. Um, and I wanted to be a comedy magician. I didn't want to be a serious magician i didn't want to be an illusionist like david copperfield or, or the guys in tailcoats doing the 
I just it was all always about comedy, about making people laugh. And I thought magic could be a prop that I could use to do a comedy show. Um, so I didn't use the piano in my show until well into my twenties, really. Um, it was it was called comedy magic. So Tommy Cooper was a big influence. Um, I, I I enjoyed. I think the guy, uh, my dad was a big fan of Fred Astaire. He had all the Fred Astaire movies. And I got, I, I still love watching Fred Astaire. I mean, if, I, if, I'm, if I've got some time to kill them on YouTube, I'll often sort of Google the, you know, some Fred Astaire clips. I, it's just magical that that man could move like, like, no, like, like no other human on earth. That I, it, it, and I can't dance. My, my wife's a dancer. I can't dance. So it's nothing to do with that. He just had a style about him, which, which I absolutely fell in love with. Um, and then when I did discover the piano, the guy that inspired me really was my dad told me about a guy called Victor Borger, who I don't know if you've ever heard of. He was very big in the 1950s um, and 60s, a, a, a Danish performer, who was the first guy I ever saw being funny with a piano. He used to wear a tailcoat and he, he, people often think he was coming out to play sort of serious music. And then he just he'd just tear it apart and have so much fun with it. And his comment, if, if you Google him on, on YouTube, whatever, he's, he's um, his comedy is timeless. It's still very funny today. So he was the guy that made me realize, oh, because I could always play the piano. I played the piano since I was about five years old, but I just did it for a hobby. I didn't think I was going to do it as a career. And then when I saw Victor Borger, I thought, oh, you, you can be funny with a piano. And of course that led on to people like Flanders and Swan. Again, they were long before my time, but my dad told me about them. Uh, and then, as you say, Les Dawson, Victoria Wood, of course. Today, you've got Tim Minchin, who I'm a big fan of. I think he's fantastic. Um, Bill Bailey uses music a lot in his show. Uh, Dudley Moore was in there. He was a he was a very accomplished classical and jazz pianist, and of course hilarious. So once I started finding his stuff on on uh, on VHS cassette when I was younger, uh, he was quite a big influence as well. But there's you know you, you've got to be careful not to be you can be inspired by it, but you don't want to be influenced too heavily because you can soak up too much. Yeah, it's really frustrating listening to Tim Minchin because I love him so much and I, I know all his songs. But then when I sit down to write, you don't want to be channeling. Tim Minchin, you want to, you know, you've got to try and create your own stuff. So it's easy to get influenced too much by by people that you look up to, whatever. Um, you've got to try and find your own voice, which isn't easy when it comes to comedy, especially. So, yeah, but those are some of the guys that inspired me growing up. Someone like Max Wall. Max Wall, blimey. Yeah, he was great. I mean, my, my parents were involved in old time music hall when I was growing up. Um, and like, you know, the days of sort of proper variety. I mean, they, they were doing like a music hall tribute show with a, called Barrington's Musical with a group of other people. Um, but that harked back to the days of um, like your Max Wall comedians and stuff. Your, your front of curtain acts. They were called front of, front of curtain performers that would come on and perform while they were setting for the next big production behind the curtain. And that's what Max Wall was really. Um, and a lot of those guys, that's why Morecambe and Wise, um, when they had their TV show, um, nobody ever questioned why they had a big curtain. I mean, you never have a curtain in a TV studio. It just doesn't happen. But they bought their variety show from, from the musical, from the, from the musicals and put it on TV and kept it, kept the curtain and Eric Morecambe coming through the curtain doing all those jokes. That's what old time musical was. Um, so it was lovely that they bought that onto, onto telly. Uh, I, I, I love that, yeah. Maxwell, oh blimey, you're too young to know him. Come on, how old are you, Josh? <laughs> he's he's thirty-five. Thirty-five. Yeah. You know. I am a bit of a, 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 a
he is a bit of an anorak when it comes to the history. Me okay. too, me too, my friend. That's all good. start but one of the reasons they had that was because they had an executive like Bill Cotton who'd grown up with the theatre sort of uh, style himself so exactly yeah yeah well you know their first TV show was a big flop um, outside the outside the box was it called I think or inside the box or something like that um, and I think it, it, it's it, it's a good example of how TV's changed because if they were around today and that first TV show didn't work. We'd never have heard of them. They wouldn't have been given a second chance. That first TV show was such a failure. And that 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 that, that famous quote from the reporter that said, "Television is the box they buried Morecambe and Wise in." Um, but they were given a second chance, and they came back with more creative control. Said, "We want to do what we do best. Don't try and mould us to fit yeah. TV." Um, and the rest is history. Yeah, but yeah, big Morecambe and Wise fan. You too. I love it. <laughs> So uh, Les Dawson was an incredibly talented pianist and discovered that playing badly was something that was comically successful. How difficult is it to play the piano badly for comedic effect? Much harder than anybody thinks. Uh, it, you, you've got to be able to do it well to know how to play it badly. Anybody can play a piano badly, but it's often not funny. It's just excruciating. Um, yeah, Les was a, a good a good pianist. Um, in fact, I was I was part of the Les Dawson documentary, The Lost Tapes, um, and I got to go to Les's house and I, I played his piano with his, his wife and his daughter. And I thought it'd be quite nice to learn one of the pieces that he played the exact way he played it. Because, you know, I can I can do an imitation of, of Les. I can I can, you know, just he, he didn't just play the wrong notes. He, he played slightly the wrong notes. It was it was just out. It was almost like it was out of tune and you, you anticipated it coming, which was the, the, the comedy genius, really. He'd start off playing it perfectly. OK, I'll do a big flourish to show that he could play. And you'd be waiting for the for the bad bit and people would start laughing. A bit like Tommy Cooper, you'd wait for something, you know, you'd be laughing before the before the joke. Um, so I learned to play uh, side by side, which exactly how Les played it. And it took me quite a while. I mean, I was, I, I, I play by ear mostly. I don't really read music. So um, I had a recording of him playing it and I just went over it and over it and over it and learned to play it exactly. Um, and when we got to the, to the house to do the recording, um, his wife and his daughter were in the other room and I was in the piano with all the cameras and I sat down and I started playing this side by side and they both came running out quite emotional and said, oh my God, it, it's like dad's, sat at the piano again you know they, they came out of the other room because that's where he used to sit and play where he used to sit and practice quite an emotional thing really to, to be able to do that but yeah um it it took quite a long time to learn his notes <laughs> people don't realize <laughs> um, um, 
No. You've got a lot in common with Les Dawson because obviously he auditioned for Opportunity Knots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he um, he used to play the piano in brothels as well. Did you know that? I haven't got that in common with him, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not yet. Yeah, no, not yet. <laughs> Still waiting for that booking. <laughs> in 2020, you auditioned for Britain's Got Talent. Firstly, what made you apply? And secondly, what's the process of doing an audition? Uh, what made me apply is I finally thought something to do. Uh, I, I've been, a lot of us professional acts get uh, emails from uh, run or producers of the show or, or talent scouts for the show. Um, they like to try and get some professional acts on the show uh, just to sort of maybe balance out the occasional bad act or just to know that, as I say, they're making a TV show. So if they can get a professional act um, and there's no offer of payment. I mean, we are invited to audition like everybody else. Um, so I'd had a few emails saying, would you consider coming on the show? And I'd always had the same excuse. Um, one, I was too busy. I was, you know, I was traveling and, and working a lot and I didn't want to take time out. Um, on the off chance, there was a period of time from the beginning of the show until maybe 2011, 2012, when Simon would often use a cruise ship act as a put down for one of the performers. If there was somebody that was a bit cheesy or, or he didn't like, he'd say things like, well, you might be good enough for a cruise ship, but you know, you're not good enough for TV. And it used to really piss me off. Can I say piss me off? Or it used to really upset me. Um, you can edit that. Uh, because, you know, he had no idea of the level of talent that was on the ships. He, he's never been on, on his own. He's been on his own yacht. He's never been on the cruise ship. So I had all his excuses for not, not doing it. But the main reason was that my one-man show at the time had piano and singing and comedy songs and stand-up comedy and a bit of comedy magic. And it was a show that had a beginning, a middle and an end. And I'd been working on it for 20 years. You know, it, it evolved over time. And I couldn't imagine taking anything out of that show that would stand alone for just three minutes, which is all you have on the show. So I never had the motivation to do it. And then a friend of mine uh, saw my show on the, on a cruise ship and he'd been on Britain's Got Talent. And he, he'd had a good time. He hadn't got through to the finals, but he'd had a, a good experience. Um, and he said, why haven't you done it? And I told him everything I've just told you. And he said, well, why don't you write an original song about auditioning for the show? You know, make it about the fact that you are auditioning for the show and then sing the song. And he just planted the seed, really. And I wrote the song that night and um, sent it to uh, a friend of mine who was working on the show. He's the, the magic consultant on the show. is a guy called Russ Stevens, who we'd worked together before on, on the cruises many years ago. And he's now Simon's magic consultant. So I just got in touch with him and I said, I've written this song. Um, do you think it might work on the show and, and if it if you think so could I come and audition uh and then the main motivation for doing it then was the fact that they were auditioning at the London Palladium because I live near Manchester and they were doing auditions that year at the Lowry um so they said yeah well you know we, we, we love the song could we, could you audition presuming you want to audition at the Lowry and I said absolutely not I said this is my opportunity to stand on that stage I've never performed at the Palladium um but much like yourself, I imagine, you know, I'd, I'd seen so many performers. Every, I mean, Charlie Chaplin was on that stage, you know. Harry Houdini was on that stage. It's, it's incredible. Everyone is everyone has, has performed at the Palladium. And so I was nearly 50. Uh, I thought, well, I'm, you know, unlikely I'm, I'm going to get a break now. Um, so even if I don't get through the audition stage, at least I can say I've performed on the Palladium stage. So that was my real motivation. So I had the song, I had the venue, um, and then it all went a bit crazy, really. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's nothing quite like standing on that podium stage and like feeling all that history. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was incredible. For, for some of the filming, actually, they they set up an area underneath the stage that was made to look like backstage. So they had another area to film in because you do all the backstage stuff as well. You do stuff in the hotel, which is sort of looks like with the flight cases and stuff. Um, but they'd also set up a space underneath the stage that they were filming like some slow motion shots in like people walking backstage. Um, again, all the secrets of TV, really nothing's. And so I got to go underneath the stage and um, Bruce Forsyth is interred down there, of course. Um, and it was it was almost as exciting to be underneath that stage as it was to be on top of it. Um, they, they, they've they've done up most of the palladium now. All the dressing stage uh, backstage areas uh, have been um, completely redone, and a lot of the history's gone. I mean, there was there was graffiti on the walls from some huge stars, and it's all being plastered over. It's it's a bit sad, really. But underneath the stage is still relatively untouched. You can still sort of feel the history of the theatre under there and looking up at the floorboards. It was, it was quite amazing, quite, quite, quite an emotional experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Josh was lucky enough a couple of years ago to have his own tour of the Palladium, and he was just oh, amazing. Yeah, he's just struck by how powerful the place feels and how it is. Amazing. Oh, I love that you feel that way. Yeah, that's 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 pretty cool. You got a tour of the place. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> and then of course I got to go. I got, I got to sit on there again almost a year to the day of my audition when we filmed the. My song for one of the auditions for for this this year's show. I opened one of the auditions um, with a song that I'd written. So we filmed it on the Palladiums, and it was it was a, a year to the day, bar two days that I'd sat there for my audition, and I was back recording another another song in in, in front of a live audience. And that was the most because of course my semi-finals and the finals we had no live audience. It was all virtual, but the auditions did because we recorded it in January 2020, even though it wasn't broadcast until. April. So to be back there with another live audience, I mean, I think they had trouble getting me off the. I was only meant to record the one song, but I was ready to do a whole show. Yeah. <laughs> How did that feel going back? Going back, emotional. Yeah, I mean, I had to sort of had to sort of try and hold it in because I, I had a job to do. You know, I perform a song and stuff. You don't want to sit there getting teary eyed and nobody really. Know. It's all right doing it for the audition. I mean. My, my voice cracked a bit at the audition when Amanda asked me what it what it meant to be there, and I talked about my dad a bit, you know, um, which is fine. I mean, that, that was all authentic. I wasn't putting anything on, but you know, you've got to draw a line. I mean, you can't go back there as a as the guy that's won it as a professional and still be a bit overwhelmed by it. You've got to get down and do the job, I guess. But yeah, it was it was it was amazing, and I hope I get another chance to get to go back again because it's a very it's a very magical place. 
So in recent years, in order to keep the format fresh, they introduced the golden buzzer aspects, which you received and decks. But how much added pressure does that put on you as a performer? And in what ways does this affect the dynamics between the people who go through to the next round? Um, I, th there's no there's no more pressure, especially for me. I mean, I remember I got asked backstage, one of the researchers, somebody interviewed me, you know, trying to get this emotional thing going. How would your dad feel if you were here now? How would you feel if you got the golden buzzer? And I hadn't thought about it because, um, I, well, my wife had told me that uh, there was only two golden buzzers left, Anton Dex and I think David Williams were the only two. The other three judges had had used their buzzers and they were yet to film in Manchester. They still had two weeks of auditions in Manchester to go. I was the last act on the last day of auditions at the Palladium. Uh, and then the week after they were coming to Manchester. Um, so in my head, the, the odds are against me. I thought, well, you know, they, they're going to save a couple of buzzers for Manchester, but of course it doesn't work like that. I mean, even when it's broadcast, it, it chops and changes between different audition days. You don't see it in sequence. So it makes, I, I mean, I didn't realize that at the time, but in my head, um, yeah, I, I wasn't even thinking about it, which is why when it happened, when you watch it back, I look very confused. I, I thought I'd, I'd been watching a lot of the auditions that day because we were hanging around all day. I was quite surprised that I was given free reign just to walk around backstage a lot of the time. Nobody was, I expected a hand on my shoulder at any moment to say, you're not meant to be here. But for a lot of the show, I was standing opposite Anton Deck in the other wings, watching watching the auditions and watching Anton Deck um, before, I'd even, before I'd even met them, you know. Um, and occasionally they'd come out on stage and interact with the audience or with the warm-up guy or with the judges if they had time to kill, if, if they were setting something, or if something had gone wrong. If you know if a, a prop had fallen over or they had to stop filming or whatever, Anton Deck would often come out and do something with the audience and have some fun. So when I sort of clocked them running out, my first thought was something's gone wrong. We've, we've got to stop recruiting. We're going to have to do it again or something. Something's caught fire or the piano's rolling. Whatever that was, and it wasn't until they sort of ran down the steps off the stage and my son was next to me going, "You've done it! You've done it!" It was only then I sort of went, oh, my God, you know, is this is this actually happening? It took a long time for it to sink in because I just assumed there were no, going to be no more golden buzzers in London. So there, in, to answer your question, I didn't feel any pressure because of the buzzer. Um, and how does it affect the dynamics if you go straight through? I don't know. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't feel there was any I, I, like anybody was resenting me, if that's what you mean, you know, because I hadn't I hadn't been put up for the vote it only occurred to me in the finals actually that um when we because we recorded the finals and then we had to wait until the next day to record the results live so the finals was pre-recorded and then the results were actually live and it was made to look like one show um and it was only that night after recording my final show and realizing there was nothing i could do about it now it was in the can as they say so um what would be would be and it occurred to me then that that would be the first time that I'd be put up for the public vote because the golden buzzer straight through and then in the semi-finals, the judge's choice. So I had no idea if the public even liked me. Nobody had voted for me. <laughs> so it was only at that point I went, oh God, you know, everybody might just, this might go completely horribly wrong. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't feel any resentment from, from the other acts. I felt very lucky, obviously. Um, I, I think it's a great advantage to know that you're going to, you know, I could start working on my on my next song straight away, knowing that I had a a, a, a spot in, in, in the next show. Um, but I didn't feel that anybody else, maybe they did, but they didn't tell me if they if they resented me for going straight through. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, if that's what you meant. <laughs> yeah. 
So on Sunday, 10th of October 2020, you claimed victory as the 14th winner of Britain's Got Talent. How did you feel? Ah, that's a loaded question. Um, well, the obvious answers, you know, happy and overwhelmed and excited. Um, but if, if, if you want the, the honest truth, um, I'd been going through a, a cancer diagnosis during sort of the BGT process. Um, a, a mole that started as a melanoma on my head um, had, had uh, so I had a skin graft uh, and then I, I actually got the all clear just before Christmas and then it metastasized in my neck and I had a tumor in my neck so I've had a radical neck dissection I'm okay now I've had treatment I've had immunotherapy um, but on the day of the finals they hadn't told me um, whether it, it had spread uh, the, the original melanoma we knew it was a deep melanoma it was a stage three so chances are that it that it had um and i was going through a pretty horrible time sort of mentally and i had anxiety and that kind of stuff at the same time as trying to enjoy the highlight of my career so the truth is when they said well even before they said i won but thinking about winning was the thought that if the worst happened and i wasn't going to be around that money would be a huge help to my family i hadn't worked for almost two years at that point so um, we had we had nothing. We were very close to sort of losing our house. Um, our savings were long gone. I got the, a loan from the government, the bounce back, all that kind of stuff. But we were at sort of debt's door, really, debt's door and debt's door. Um, so it was a huge relief. That it was a very strange feeling to be tinged with that sort of emotion that you know um, I, I didn't know if I was going to be around to enjoy it or not. With a bit dark. It's not the answer that everybody wants, but. Um, I started off with that question immediately afterwards saying, oh, of course I felt incredible. It felt amazing. Um, I felt very lucky and, and um, mm. all that. But it was, uh, it was quite a dark period uh, in, in my life as well. So it was, it was strange, very strange. Oh, thanks for being so open and honest. Yeah, oh, we you more than welcome. I mean, we 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 did a I did a, a campaign with Macmillan about people checking their moles and stuff. I wrote a song about it and went on this morning and stuff and tried to get the message out there once I got the first all clear and then we had to keep it quiet well, I chose to keep it quiet because it, it put a bit of a dampener on the on the first you know I'm all clear it's okay and then write this song and everybody's celebrating and oh man they found another tumor yeah. um so yeah it was a, it, it was a really a really strange time but I, I think it's very important to talk about it because that's what certainly helped me um Macmillan put me into touch with a therapist because as I say I wasn't handling it very well um so I, I talked about it and, uh, you know, men aren't renowned in general for talking about health and feelings and that kind of stuff. And I think it's really important. So I'm all for, I'm all for putting it out there. Yeah. 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 Hey, hey, hey. Oh, oh, me. You, you, and i guess it helped you really reflect on your life at that point and made you realize what is important and what isn't and what is important isn't that important Exactly. Yeah, I, I think I was certainly uh, channeling some of that when I was writing the, the final song because I didn't know how to write that. It took me a long time to write that. Um, I wanted to write about what was going on. I wanted to write about COVID and lockdown, 
but I wanted to make it funny and feel good and happy. And how could you do that when so many people were dying and suffering? And it was, you know, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. It was horrible. And I think maybe what I was going through with, with my health, maybe I, I, it wasn't a conscious thing. I, I didn't think that's what caused it. But looking back on it now in hindsight, um, I was definitely sort of looking at the small things around me that, that were keeping me going. And that was my family and, and you know, the, the, the little things in life that, that were helping me focus on that rather than being overwhelmed by the big things, which everybody assumed it was all just COVID. But in actual fact, the big thing for me was trying to get through the, the health crisis. So, yeah. Yeah. Personally, I feel that when it comes to Britain's Got Talent, if you're a singer or a musician, your options are dramatically different based upon the specific genre's perception of reality television. However, how have you been welcomed into the world of entertainment? Um, uh, blimey. Uh, I, do you mean the world of entertainment after I've won BGT? The, the, yeah. uh, um, well, great. I mean, the, the, the people I've worked with who were sort of already established, if you like. I mean, when I did the Royal Variety Show, um, there was Gary Barlow, Mel C, Michael Ball, Steps, um, Michelle Wallace, uh, Michelle Wallace. Uh, and they were lovely. I, I thought maybe I'd feel like I was there because I won a competition because, you know, essentially that's why I was there. Um, but then I think whether they realised that, you know, I wasn't a guy that had just by fluke won a competition. I, I had been in the business for a long time. Um, nobody made me feel that way. I was, I was, it was quite surreal, really. At one point I was standing on the Opera House stage uh, in between Gary Barlow and Mel C and we were just having a chat and it all got a bit overwhelming. I was like, this is ridiculous. This is take that and the Spice Girls. And I'm stood in the middle having a perfectly normal conversation and you have to pinch yourself a little bit, but I tried not to let it show. I was just pretending that was a perfectly normal day for me. You know? um, so no, I mean, it, it's, uh, I, I, I've been asked, you know, did BGT change your life? And uh, again, the stock answer is yes, of course it did. But in actual fact, I think COVID changed everybody's lives. Um, and BGT actually let me carry on with mine. I mean, a lot of my friends um, are still struggling to get their footing. You know, I mean, the cruises are coming back and obviously audiences are coming back now. Um, but it was such a rough time for the entertainment industry, the industry that I've been a part of for so long. And I think BGT put me at the top of the pile again. So when work did start coming back, I was going out and doing the corporate shows and, and, and charity stuff and whatever it may be. And I certainly wouldn't have you know, been at the top of any list if I hadn't have been on the telly. I'd have been going away back on the ships for months at a time, which is what a lot of my friends are having to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally changed the question then. Did BGT change your life? Uh, yes, I, I, I feel very welcomed by everybody that I've, I've worked with, really. Um, there's 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 the sort of the two sides of it. There are the people that want to get more exposure and want to be more recognised, and they ask me a lot about BGT and would I recommend it and what was the experience like. And then there's the people that are very established and famous, if you like, or celebrities, whatever. Um, but th they've all been lovely. I mean, I, I I can't give you any gossip. I'm afraid there isn't any scandal. Everybody's been really lovely to me. <laughs> uh, oh God. Uh, Josh has got a question for you. Uh, he warns you it is a bit long winded, so bear with him and strap it. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, well, 
Vâng, ơi, vâng, some of it go on <laughs> yeah the royal variety performance like as yeah. we were growing up was seen as like the pinnacle like the peak of entertainment that was the big show everyone wanted to be there and perform but since like this generation of the x factor and simon cow has come about like that sort of demoted it like the royal variety down a bit in josh's opinion so do you still think it's still as significant as it is is it still is there still prestige for performing on the royal variety um, I, I think it is in, in the industry. I mean, I think people like you and I, Josh, that are, are very aware of the history and, and appreciate the history. Um, it's, it's still a huge deal. I mean, it was a huge part of my life growing up with my mum and dad watching it normally from the Palladium. Um, so for me, it was, I couldn't, I couldn't see it from anybody else's point of view. For, for me, it was the highlight of my of my career really to, to be a part of that history of that show and then we got invited back as as guests for the for last year last year 20 yeah 21 um so i got to sit in the audience at the albert hall and, and watch it again and i think i didn't really understand much about the charity to be honest that that it helps that the um the, the royal variety charity but i've since gone back to brinsworth house and i've done some performances at brinsworth house um which is supported which is what the royal variety charity is, is all about and met some of the residents um and it, it's just lovely. I mean, for, you know, for our for our business, it's just lovely that it that it exists, that that charity exists, that that that, that help exists, um, and that it. I mean, it isn't just the Royal Variety Show, obviously, that funds it. They have events all through the year, but obviously, that's that's the highlight of their calendar. Um, and I think I, I I learned about the history more than I already knew be, before I was on it, and it's incredible, you know, the, the what it what it stands for within our industry. I can't speak on behalf of anybody else who who doesn't care for it or or thinks it's. I mean, yes, it's it's of a time and place. I get that. I mean, we don't have variety shows anymore, really. They tried to bring it back, didn't they, with the Sunday night at the Palladium with with Bradley Walsh, and that had some some success. Um, but I think you're right about you know it's watching what my kids watch now. My youngest is eleven, and he loves his YouTube and his YouTube stars. You know these guys. And it's, I mean, to me, it's brain numbing. He watches people watching the internet and they talk about what they're watching. 
which is basically Gogglebox. I mean, there are millions of people are watching people watching telly. If you'd have pitched that show 20 years ago, you'd been laughed out the room. Um, and now it's one of the highest rated shows on, on television. So I think, I think entertainment always, always has to change. The style of comedy is always changing, as is the style of what is entertainment, what is, you know, what people want to watch. So, yeah, I think the Royal Variety is of a time and a place, but thank God it still is. You know, thank God it, it reaches back to that, that history of over 100 years. Um, and they wouldn't be get you don't get paid much for doing it. Um, you know, it's expenses, basically. It, it, it was originally the Royal, I'm sure you know this, the Royal Command performance when uh, uh, King George commanded the, the show for the Artist Benevolent Fund. Um, so you're not really paid much. So, you know, they, they have a lot of performers now that have got something to push. I know there are people promoting albums and books and there's a lot of that. That's, that's how they get a lot of the big stars because they've got something coming out and they know they're going to be seen by X amount of million of people, millions of people. Um, but I think they all feel quite thrilled to be, I imagine they do. Um, I, I got to chat to, to Michael Ball, the show that we did and um, also Gary as well. I mean, Gary's done, I think five or six of them now. Um, and he was still buzzing. He was still overjoyed to be part of it, you know. So I don't think they, it's not, it isn't blasé to them, and hopefully it isn't blasé to the audiences. I hope it goes on for another hundred years because it's it's such a such a great part of our history, really. Yeah. <laughs> entertainers from the 60s and 70s and that's what made it what it is that's what gave it the reputation yeah yeah definitely i mean they all the, anyone who's anyone has been on the show you know the, the yeah. roll call of people that appeared on it yeah and the, all, all, always will hopefully yeah definitely yeah so earlier this year you wrote and starred in the end of the series end of the show show for ant and dex saturday <laughs> night takeaway how difficult yeah. was that to put together really difficult oh my god uh yeah they, they approached me about it and um uh asked if you know would i like to do it and of course you know you don't say no to these things before you even know what it is it's like of course what a great uh, experience if, if nothing else and then they told me what they were sort of looking for that they wanted a song to um round up the entire series um so i said yep i can you know again say yes and work it out later that's that's my my motto so i said yep no problem can do that um so it was yeah i mean i was i was taking notes each week when i watched it and i started sort of writing it in sequence so the first three shows were the first sort of six verses there were two verses for each show um and i sent that off to them and they said oh no 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 we don't want to do it like this we want to have each verses that a verse that covers an aspect of the show so one verse would cover, uh, I'm a celebrity, get out my ear, for example. One verse would cover the guest announcers. And I said, but that means that we can't write the whole song 
until just before we do it you know because we weren't they went yeah i know it's going to be tough and i i said well as long as it's pre-recorded you know we can keep doing it until we get it right and they said oh no it's going to be live mm -hmm. um uh, so yeah but there, there was a moment when i just said it can't be done but then they said don't worry you've got support we've got writers we've got producers we've got people that will help you we'll, we'll tell you pre-recorded stuff that we've done and um but there was there was a very funny moment that happened when i was um i think the fourth episode was broadcast on the saturday after the friday when i'd had my radical neck dissection in hospital um so it was about a six hour operation on the friday on the saturday i was on obviously morphine and all kinds of stuff in my hospital room but they were I had my television they were showing the fourth episode so i had pen and paper and i was taking down notes of what was going on on the show because i couldn't record it and i remember what my wife was recording it at home but i thought well at least i can watch it and do some notes but i was a bit drugged i was a bit bit wizzy so i'm starting sort of taking notes and as as i'm doing it my surgeon walked in to talk to me about what he'd done on the operation and obviously that was really important but so was taking notes for the live show that i was going to be performing on like sort of three weeks later four weeks later so i was trying to take notes and trying mm. to listen to my, to my consultant and after a few minutes, he finally said, I'm sorry, am I interrupting something? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I said, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be rude. I said, but and I explained what I was doing. I said, I'm trying to take notes because I've got to write a song for this show that I'm performing on. And he stopped me. He said, I, I don't understand. What What are you doing? So I repeat, I said, I'm taking notes of this show because I'm performing a song on this show in four weeks about what's happening now on the television. So I got to take notes. And he didn't really get it. So after the third explanation, he finally understood what I was doing. And he said, that's incredible. How do you do that? And I said, says the man who just opened me up from my scalp to my shoulder and took out half my neck and basically saved my life. You know, I said, we all have our skill set. Luckily, yours is saving lives and mine's just writing stupid songs. So, um, yeah, he, he said, I'll leave you to it and I'll, I'll come back in an hour. So he, he let me take notes and then came back later. Very, very strange situation, but it was a great experience. And Ant and Deck really are very, very lovely. And we had a great time recording it. And I think we got away with it, but it was one of the most nerve wracking things I've ever done. More nerve wracking than doing BGT. <laughs> so just to round it off, what's next for John Courtenay? Well, uh, the Edinburgh Festival, I've written a whole new show about um, my experience with BGT while going through the cancer thing. It, it's a comedy, uh, but it's a one man musical and it all rhymes. Uh, it's about 45, 50 minutes long. And I wrote it. Well, I started writing it about six months ago, finished it um, probably last month, I guess. And we've got some previews coming up. We're doing the Lowry um, Theatre uh, in a week, a week's time. That'll be the first public preview. And then the Bedford Fringe at the end of July. And then for the first two weeks of August, I'll be in Edinburgh uh, performing it. So that's, it's unlike anything I've ever done before. So that's, uh, that's very exciting for me. And I'm hoping it is well received because hopefully that will lead on to something a bit different. I I'll always love doing my piano show and my cabaret and writing songs, uh, but it'd be nice to branch out a bit. You know, I, I think BGT um, let me carry on doing what I've been doing for 20 years, which has been great. Um, but it'd be fun to sort of get out there, maybe do a bit more acting, a bit more drama. I'd love to get back into that again. I did some youth theatre stuff when I was a kid. Um, so maybe uh, this the show that I've written for Edinburgh will show off my acting chops and I'll get to do something a bit different. Um, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be touring it in 2023, hopefully, um, the, the Edinburgh show. It'll, it'll go on a theatre tour next year. Um, and then who knows? Who knows? Brilliant. <laughs> yeah.
Sen Have you done Edinburgh before? No, never. Always wanted to. Um, I've been once as a as a punter, just to you know go up there and experience it. Um, but I've never had the. You, you don't tend to make money doing Edinburgh. Um, uh, I mean, you're lucky if you don't lose it. To be honest, if you sort of break even, um, most people go up there for the exposure uh, in the hope that you know yeah. somebody will see them doing what they're doing. Or uh, a lot of established performers are up there, and I guess you know they yeah. must make some money. I guess, but. I, I've never been able to afford to do it. I've never been able to take the risk of going up there. And I mean, I know people that have lost 10, 15,000 pounds doing Edinburgh um, with a with a good show. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a scary thing. Um, so I've always wanted to do it. So I thought, well, you know, um, the, the prize money gave me a little bit of breathing space and uh, I came up with the idea for the show. So uh, I'm finally going to do it. Yeah, another tick off the bucket list. Yeah, excellent. Good luck with that. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, you have to let Josh know how you get on with that. Absolutely. Where, whereabouts are you based, Josh? Where's Where's home? We are on the Isle of Wight. Oh blimey! I had, I didn't I didn't get there on my tour. I've done shows over there. I've done Benbridge a few times over there on the Isle of Wight. Um, yeah, well, I must. I've got friends on the Isle of Wight. We, I, I need to try and get a tour date over there. That'd be amazing. Um, watch this space. I'll see if I can get a see if I can get a venue on the Isle of Wight for my tour in twenty three, and it'll be be great to meet you in person. Cool. Yeah, thank you. That'd be great. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been really nice to meet you, Josh. Thanks for having me on your show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, You're no doing worries. a grand Thank job. You. What's your what, What's your relationship with Josh? Are you a, a, a friend, a carer? A... I'm, a, I'm a carer and assistant to Josh. So Josh has Amazing. a few of assistants uh, who work with him uh, day in, day out. And uh, today's my day, so I was lucky enough to uh, do this podcast with you. Oh, amazing. Well, good yeah. for you for doing that job, man. Ab <laughs> absolute respect. And uh, Josh, it's been yeah. a pleasure to meet you, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, Josh will let you know when he puts it onto his website and when it goes out onto all the social media. Definitely, yeah. I'll share it on my socials as, as well, of course. I'm, I mean, I'm really crap at social media, but I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks so much. Take, take care of yourselves. You too. All the best. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.